Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in again. We just wanted to express from us as staff to you as listeners and watchers, we just wanted to say thank you for your kind words of support and encouragement as we've tried to put these videos together for you. We thank you for tuning in to another one and we hope that it's an encouraging time for you and your family. Till the race is finished 
Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Standing on the promises of Christ my King Through eternal ages let His praises ring Glory in the highest I will shout and sing Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Savior Standing, standing I'm standing on the promises of God, standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, stand. of Christ the Lord, bound to Him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. Promises I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in. 
Father, thank you for this day that you've given to us. We ask that you would be with us in a special way as we gather together. We recognize, Father, that um, this is a difficult time for a number of people. We pray for those who are uh, dealing with loneliness, with those who feeling so are feeling so isolated. We are thankful that while we are apart, uh, you are with us, and we ask your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue on uh, in our study through the book of Hebrews, this morning we're in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at uh, sort of the middle section of it, uh, dealing with faith. And of course, the premier example of faith drawn from the Old Testament is Abraham. And so uh, our author begins his treatment uh, of this uh, middle section with Abraham and reminds us of some of the things that Abraham did. And of course, calls us through his example uh, to imitation in terms of walking with God. So we're going to read this morning Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 22. Hebrews 11, 8 through 22, this is the word of God. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. As 
before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Father, you, you have been uh, good to us and you are good to us. We would ask this morning that you would open your word, uh, help us to understand it, help us to see some of its significance, knowing we'll never exhaust all that it has for us. Help us to uh, profit by it and also to see how it applies in our lives today uh, as we are called to walk by faith, to trust you, and to follow you. Help us to do this. Help us to be a community of faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, last week in verses 1 through 7, uh, we looked at some of the, the opening characters in the book of Genesis and how uh, the author of Hebrews uses them and discusses them in the context of imitating their faith, seeing what they were able to do and how they were pleasing to God. And now he continues on in discussion of characters from Genesis, uh, picking up in Genesis 12 with Abraham and then finishing with Joseph uh, at the end of the book. So we're going to be covering, uh, we're going to be spending most of our time talking about Abraham, and then we'll spend a little bit of time, and the author just gives you basically just one little tiny thought, uh, about three characters at the end, so we'll be fairly brief at that point. Um, but we'll look at how the author draws on these characters and these narratives from uh, Genesis to show us how we are supposed to ourselves follow God. Now, the first thing that actually should be said about this is that we, we very often uh, move sort of directly to application in, in a section like this. So we might talk about uh, the risks that Abraham took and how Abraham was faithful to follow God no matter what the cost, etc. And we sort of make that into a metaphor of following God. Uh, but for Abraham, uh, this wasn't metaphorical. I mean, uh, this passage will discuss uh, the, the event in Genesis 22 when Abraham is called to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And, and we might make that into a metaphor, uh, and profitably perhaps, but we might make that into a metaphor of you know, what God might call us to give up. But Abraham was literally called to go up on the mountain with his literal son. This was not figurative. This was not a metaphor for total obedience. This was not a metaphor for being willing to sacrifice the thing you love the most to God. It was an actual day in his life. Uh, it was an actual moment in time when he ascended that hill. It, it, was, it was literally something he did when he bound his son and laid him on the altar. And so for us, there are applications here, but we don't want to forget that in the first instance, what the author is doing is, is reminding us of historical, lived, embodied experience of uh, these people. Abraham, of course, is sort of the premier example of faith uh, in the Old Testament, cited a, a lot in the New Testament in that regard, He's the, the physical father of the nation of Israel, but he's also the father of everyone who has faith. And so the life, of, uh, the life and narrative of Abraham is bound up in all kinds of sort of complex uh, interrelationships between 
you know, faith and, and trusting God and, and trial and difficulty and sacrifice, but also uh, God's, God's incredible covenants with people. Uh, the, the, these incredible covenant blessings that come to the world through Abraham and ultimately through Abraham's seed, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Abraham is sort of central uh, and, and seminal in this uh, redemptive plan of God, which, which unfolds through covenant relationships. And so whenever you're dealing with Abraham, you know, you're dealing with, with things that are foundational and essential. The one here, of course, for, for our author's context is the incredible faith that Abraham was willing to display. And you know the story. Uh, you know, he's called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He's called out of paganism and idol worship. And uh, God tells him to, to give up everything that he knows, all of his comfort, uh, all, all of his you know, interrelationships. Uh, the culture and community with which he's familiar, uh, he's told to go, and he's not even told where he's going. The Lord says, you're going to leave home, you're going to leave what you know, and you're going to follow me. And, and I'm going to take you somewhere, and, and you just have to trust. Now, that is a shockingly bad proposition for Abraham in a lot of ways, in a natural metric. You know, someone comes along to you and says, look, I want you to abandon all that you know, but trust me, it'll be worth it. Well, you know, before you, you sign over your home and, and liquidate your bank account to give that person, you know, all of your money, you might want to stop and think about it. Like, like, how do you know? How do you trust? Abraham is able to trust because in that revelation of God, whatever, it's not just the call of God, but God would have revealed himself to Abraham more than through just the words or impression. Abraham must have had a very impre impressive, undeniable experience of Almighty God to be able to trust him that much. In other words, Abraham trusts the Word of God because he trusts the character and power of God. This is the opposite, actually, of what you get in the temptation in, in the garden. In the garden, uh, the serpent, first of all, cast doubt on the interpretation of the word of God. Did God really say, do not eat? Did he really say that? I mean, what could he have meant by that? Surely he wouldn't have really said that. If I understand, you know, by those words, what you seem to understand by those words, that doesn't make any sense at all. God wouldn't say something like that. And then the serpent moves to direct denial. No, no, you will not surely die. In other words, he, he casts doubt on the, uh, on the word of God and then contradicts and denies the word of God. But how does he think he can get away with that? He can get away with it only by casting aspersions on the character of God. So he says, you know, you will not surely die. God just knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. In other words, God is jealous. God wants to just keep you in your place. God sees your potential. He wants to limit you and hold you back. 
when we doubt or deny the word of God, it's because we are actually tacitly doubting or denying the character of God. And so Abraham, in faith, decides that he will trust God because he trusts the one who is calling him. It's a fantastic demonstration, not only in trusting the word of God, but in trusting God himself. That's why we trust his word. We trust his word because God said it. And so Abraham, with this impression of God, this experience of God, he says, okay, I don't know what my future holds, but I trust you. God, I don't know where you're taking me next month, next year, next decade. I don't even know if I'll see a year or a decade out. But I'm going to go where you want me to go. I'm going to follow you. This is the same sort of thing that you get in the teaching of Jesus. Although, although Jesus tells us where we're going to go. Where we're going to go is to a pile of crosses, and we're going to pick up our own cross every day and follow him. That's what he calls us to do. And, and, and the only way that you're going to pick up your cross and follow Jesus is if you trust Jesus. You trust him so much that you will suffer and die to yourself. If, if you don't trust God that much, then if you're Abraham, you, you stay in Ur of the Chaldeans. If you don't trust Jesus that much, you, you look at the cost of discipleship and you say no, and you turn back. No, we, we trust God. We trust Jesus. We commit ourselves to them because they are trustworthy. They are good. They are powerful. They know everything. And although we are very limited and, and Abraham didn't even know where God was going to take him, he knew as long as he was going with God, it was going to be okay. He knew that he could trust and commit himself to the Lord. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. He has all these incredible promises, and he goes out following God to get this incredible inheritance, and he finds himself just living in tents. He's a nomad. And, you know, for, for, for some who, who really enjoy uh, camping, I mean, there might be some who, who you know, would, would love nothing more than, you know, to camp all around the world, uh, you... You might think, oh, living in tents wouldn't be that bad. Well, camping in tents for a couple days is not living in tents in the wilderness. It's not, not quite the same thing, not quite the same experience. And so Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they, they, they have all the promises of God that he, they'll be blessed with this incredible inheritance, and, and they're living in tents. But they're content. It's almost like a really bad pun to say they're content when they're living in tents. Uh, that, that wasn't my, my meaning whatsoever, but it is, it is delightful. Um, the reason that they're content living in their tents intently and intensely is that he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He's looking forward he was looking past this experience. He was looking past his tent. He was looking past his home, looking past his land. 
He's saying, I know that my inheritance is a city whose architect and builder is God. Any impressive building is designed by an architect. What architects do, what engineers and designers and builders do, what stonemasons do, is they imitate God. God constructs the universe. In the, the, the blueprints of the universe are in the mind of God. The design is in the mind of God. And then, then through his will, he brings it into existence. The architect and builder is God. And you might think of you know, famous architects. You, you, you think of you know, Frank Lloyd Wright or whoever. Can you imagine the, the city that God can build? When Jesus says that, that he goes away from us. But it's okay. Remember that at this moment, you can imagine nothing more crushing for the disciples. Jesus is leaving them. And Jesus can say to the disciples, it's for your good that I'm going away. The Holy Spirit's going to come. But Jesus also says, look, it's okay. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, then I will come back to you to bring, so, to bring you to where I am so we can be together. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. What kind of a house? What kind of, I know there's a lot of metaphor here, but, but what kind of place can, can Christ make? What kind of place can God make? That's what Abraham is looking for. You know, Abraham is not looking for you know, just, just a massive perpetual increase in his stock portfolio. He's not just looking for, you know, he's not just saying, well, you know, I've got a six-room tent. Uh, you know, maybe if I have a really good year next year, I'll have an eight-room tent. No, he's, he, he, he's not even looking at the promised land. The, the, the promised land itself was never the point. The promised land, in terms of geography you know, in the Middle East, uh, that geography is a type. It, it, it's prophetic. It's a shadow of the new heavens and new earth. It's always the point. The patriarchs did not think Palestine was, was the be-all and end-all. It was, it was a down payment. It was showing them what God was going to do. Now, Abraham looked forward to a permanent city. And, and even when things looked impossible, even when it seemed like God would not somehow be able to fulfill his promises, Abraham believed. So Sarah, uh, Abraham and Sarah could not have children. But the promise was that through a child of Abraham and Sarah, the whole world would be blessed. And God waited, decade after decade, and until it was absolutely impossible, humanly speaking. And then, and not before then, did he fulfill his promise. All those years of waiting, of discouragement and pain, Still they had hope. Still they clung in trust to the promises of God because the one who gave the promises was faithful. 
and they had their child, Isaac. And through him would come not only multiple physical descendants, but also Abraham's great seed, Jesus of Nazareth, the fulfillment of all the promises of God. All these people, that is Abraham and the ones who had meant, that were mentioned earlier in the chapter, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so the idea here is, you know, and it's sort of drawing in the people who were mentioned earlier, but also this, this progeny of Abraham, you know, the, these countless physical and spiritual descendants. You know, the author of Hebrews looks back you know, over, over all of those centuries. Says, None of these people have experienced the fulfillment. None of these people have experienced, you know, to, to use, just to shift the imagery to, to another biblical author, and Isaiah, actually, for that matter. None of these people have experienced the new heavens and new earth. We're still looking forward. Uh, none of us have, have, have seen the fullness of it. We're, we've seen it from a distance, but we're longing for it. You know, we're desiring it. But many of you will, will of course, be familiar with the, the argument that C.S. Lewis makes uh, from joy or from desire. He, he, he notes that, that we all at different times have this longing for something, which it seems like nothing on earth can fulfill. It is the, these, these experiences, these flashes of joy are like signposts showing us that we were built to find satisfaction and some of the ways that our soul craves satisfaction cannot be satisfied in this world. We were built for a different world. And so we have all of these promises and there are times when we find ourselves longing for them. But in that sense, some dissatisfaction in this world can be a spur to make sure that you're focusing on what, uh, on what is to come, that you're focusing on God. Because it's not merely that you get a new place to live in a new heaven and new earth. Yes, you're longing for a better country. You're longing for the heavenly country. You're longing for the city whose architect and builder is God. But what you're really longing for is the architect. That is, you're longing, you're, you're desiring to be with the builder. You're desiring to be with God. God is the one who's prepared the city. But it's beautiful because God is there. And so our longing, our, our desire for love, is ultimately a desire for God. And so we, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We pursue Jesus. We look past this life to the life to come. And if you live this way, if you long for God, if you live like a nomad here in this world, knowing that ultimately this world is not your home and you trust the promises of God just like Abraham did, God is not ashamed to be called 
their God. God isn't ashamed to identify with people of faith. God is not ashamed to, look, to, to be with us, to call us to be with himself. He knows the struggle. He knows the cost of living in this world longing for a different one. And the cost is worth it. And he is not ashamed to be called our God. Abraham went through a lot of tests of his faith. Great faith, great tests. The hardest test of all is in Genesis 22, when God calls him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And we know the outcome of the story, even before we start it. But Abraham and Isaac really didn't. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And it's like God sets it up to be maximally painful for Abraham from the very beginning. When God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And that, that beginning... You know, how, if you didn't know this narrative, how do, how, what do you think God's going to say next? Take your son, your only son, whom you love. And, and spend some time with him. Enjoy him. Appreciate this, this, this time of relationship. Abraham, you've, you've You've given up a lot. You've had some hardship. Why, why don't you take a day off and go fishing with Isaac? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Take the one who is dearest to you and most precious to you in all the world. This son of the promise that you've longed for for decades. Take this son and put him to death in my name. Now, there are an enormous number of things to consider about that event. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, psychologically. There, there are a lot of things that ought to be said. I think that is actually a text that needs to be unpacked very carefully today. Uh, you will recall, of course, um, Soren Kierkegaard's treatment uh, of this event in his book, Fear and Trembling, where, where he sets it up in, in terms of, of sort of a philosophical analysis of 
how the individual, that is Abraham, transcends the universal ethical principle, that is, do not murder. And, and so he looks at this, he sort of sets up this, this dialectic, this question is, well, how can an individual break a universal law and command of God? But God has told Abraham to do so. So he says, you know, the, the individual must be more important than the universal. Following God must be more important than just obeying ethical regulations and rules. And, and so and, and he works this all out at, at, you know, at, at various lengths and, and sort of convincing or not convincing levels of analysis. And he concludes that, that at some point, you know, Abraham is really just sort of called to be a knight of faith. That is, you, you take this existential leap past the rules to just trust God. That, that whatever, whatever God tells you to do will somehow be right. And that your individual actions can never be justified on the basis of universal propositions. Or, or con, sort of conforming to ethical rules. But as a knight of faith, you, you leap and you trust God. The individual stands over the universal. Well, I'm not really sure if, if Abraham was thinking about those things. But we are told that Abraham was reasoning this way. God has promised me that it's through Isaac my offspring will be reckoned. So, when I couldn't have, when I couldn't have children, when, when I was too old, when my body was as good as dead, I was blessed with a child. God can bring life from death. And, and so if God can bring life from death, metaphorically, then God can bring life from death literally and physically. That's what Abraham is thinking. He's, he's saying, God, you promised. You said that the promise that the blessings would come through Isaac. You promised that. And, and so if Isaac dies, you're just going to have to raise him again. You're going to have to restore his life. And so Abraham goes up on the mountain. He says, you know what, God, I will, I will kill my son because you told me to. But I will not murder my son. I will kill my son because I know he's going to live again. Because the only way you can fulfill your promises is if Isaac lives. That is how much trust Abraham had in the promises of God. God, you can do anything. I will trust you no matter what you call me to do. And you know, of course, that God didn't even allow Abraham to go through with killing Isaac. That as Abraham was preparing to do so, the angel of the Lord calls down from Abraham, tells him to stop, reaffirms the covenant blessings and promises, and provides a substitute sacrifice, a, you know, a, a, a ram caught in, in the thicket by its horns. And so the mountain is called to the mountain uh, where the Lord provides. And, and it's, this, it's this image uh, of, of what will happen with Christ. Because, because one day, another one and only much beloved son is going to go up onto a mountain and his father is going to slay him as an offering. And Hebrews talks about that sacrifice at great length, as we've already seen. So, as much as 
we can imagine the turmoil for Abraham and Isaac. That, that's a window, that's a picture into what's happening in the Trinity when the Father pours out his wrath upon the Son on another mountain. And where, again, there is salvation because of, because of the death of a substitute. Not because there is a substitute for Jesus, but because Jesus is the substitute on that mountain for us, dying in our place. Just so you know, even though Abraham did not kill Isaac and, and see Isaac come back to life through the power of God, um, this is a bit of a spoiler alert if you're not familiar with the gospel. There is life after death. Death is not the one that's victorious ultimately. This world isn't our home because there is a world that is our home in the future. And we will not exist there as disembodied spirits. Bodies are precious. We will exist in the new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness in resurrection bodies. That's our great hope. Jesus, Isaac, Isaac doesn't die, but, but the greater Isaac does. And metaphorically, Abraham receives uh, his one and only son whom he loves back from the dead. But, but literally and, and gloriously, the father, the first person in the Trinity, receives his son back from the dead through resurrection power. And for all of us who are united in Christ, that, that's our future too. Resurrection power and glory. Because when Jesus went up on the mountain, when, when the father of the great son went up onto the mountain of sacrifice, the father did not spare his son. And the son was willing to be the substitute for us, to die, and in so doing to conquer death through his un, unquenchable life and the resurrection power of God. Rounding out Genesis, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. You know, the, the future can be scary. But if you are part of the covenant people of God, as difficult as this world may be, there are blessings. And so Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future because he knew who God is. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Blessing and worship on your deathbed. That's faith in God. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. This is actually worth, worth looking at. It. If you have your Bibles, you, you can turn uh, just to the end of Genesis. I'm sure the slide will come up with this. You know, we're, we're very familiar with, with the first verse in the Bible. What's the very last verse of Genesis? Genesis 50, 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. That's how you end Genesis. Joseph dead and in a coffin 
in Egypt. That's the last word. So different from the beginning, so different from all the hope, so different from the promises. So uh, how is death the last word in Genesis? How, how do you end with, with Joseph in a coffin in a foreign land? And of course, by the time this is written, you know, Egypt is going to be associated with, with, with the Exodus narrative. This is the place you want to get out of. Now, Genesis ends with Joseph embalmed and, and in a coffin. Because one of the things that Genesis has done the whole time is, is, is showing you that God can bring life out of death. And, and Joseph, as much as he reached the pinnacle of success in terms of politics, power, social good, money, and every metric, he was, he was a, a tremendous smashing success. He was someone in the world stage, in the superpower of the world, the most powerful nation in the history of the world up until that time. Joseph was the star of it. And when Joseph dies, he says, you make sure you take my bones to the promised land. And when the children of Israel come out of Egypt in the Exodus, they bring his coffin. Because what Joseph is doing is Joseph is saying, look, Egypt is not my home. My home is with the people of God. I belong to God's covenant plan. No amount of earthly success can make this world our home. And so what we're taught to do through these examples is we're taught to put our trust in God come what may we're taught to follow God in his leading we're taught to sacrifice and be willing to do whatever it is that God calls us to do and even as we experience pain and change in our lives these things can call us to fix our eyes on the heavenly country. And even more than that, it calls us to fix our eyes on the architect, the builder of that heavenly city, to fix our eyes on God and his son, Jesus Christ. In, in your own life, uh, many of you know what it is like to follow God through various phases of your life. You know what it's like to, to live in different places. You know what it's like to change jobs or careers. You, you know what it's like when relationships change. And, and, and many of you have learned over, sometimes painfully over years, to trust God, the same God of Abraham, to put your faith and trust and hope in Him. You know, as I think about uh, Crestwick, I'm in my ninth year here now. And I think about the various phases of, of life that I've experienced here. And I think about how, how the church is doing now. And I'm amazed at the grace of God. Amazed at the faithfulness of God's people here. When I, when I came here, uh, the church was at a bit of a low ebb for a variety of reasons, and, and in God's grace, the church has been, I believe, strengthened in, in almost every possible way. In God's grace, you know, we, we never knew what these last eight years would be like, but in God's grace, he's been faithful. 
So we've tried to open his word. We've tried to, to base what we do on, on God's word to honor and glorify him and to love one another and to serve together and grow together. It's a very different church now than it was uh, just not too long ago. I think when I look at the church, uh, the church has never been healthier in my time here. I've never enjoyed being here more than I do now. I think we have uh, tremendous staff. I, I love my colleagues on staff. I think we have an excellent and strong board. I think we have a congregation, a community of people who are learning and growing and who are truly desiring to honor God and to go with zeal and passion and faith into the future. And so I think that God has some tremendous blessings in store for this church. As the pastor, as one of the pastors here, one of the things I need to do is I always need to be trying to assess what, what the church needs. And part of that is engaging in self-analysis in terms of what I can bring to the church, what gifts I have, and whether or not that aligns perfectly with what the church itself requires. And even before this COVID pandemic, has actually nothing to do with COVID whatsoever. I've been really sensing that I've been able to contribute to the church here about all that I'm able to contribute. That what the church needs going into the next phase of its life is not what I bring to the church as the pastor. And so as I look at Crestwick, and I love Crestwick, I, I reached the decision that for the next phase of our faith journey, it will be better for the church if I step down as the lead pastor and allow someone with fresh vision and energy to come in and to help shepherd this group for the next phase of its existence. That's not an easy decision um, for me. Uh, it, you, know, if you know me, you know that it wouldn't be, you know that um, you know. As a church, you've been so good to me. I, I could not ask for a better board. I could not ask for better staff. It, it has nothing to do with anything negative here at all. I just know it would be detrimental long term if I stayed and continued trying to lead the church when, when God is calling me to do something else. So what I'm going to be doing is uh, I'm going to be going uh, to 
Madoc Baptist Church. It's where I was before coming here. Uh, their, their pastor has just recently resigned and they just, they just want me to come in and just do some preaching and teaching. Um, so I, I've, I've agreed to go as an interim pastor for a year, uh, as, as a one-year interim, and just try to provide some, some teaching and preaching for them in this transition point for them. I'm feeling like that's the place where I can contribute the most right now with the gifts that I have. Going there doesn't mean that I really want to leave here. I don't want to leave you. But I also know that this is what God is arranging. And so I need to be faithful to go. There's not a whole lot else I can really say right now. I'm, it makes me, I feel awful that this is through a video. I plan on being here to the end of um, September, sorry, the end of August, September 1st. And, I, and I'm committed to helping the board uh, and the church prepare and the staff prepare over these next few months uh, for this transition. But this text is not one I picked for this occasion, but it does fit. Are we going to walk by faith or not? Can we trust God to get us through every change or not? Can we look to the future confident in the blessing of God or not? God tests us. May God help us to pass the test in love, hope, and faith. May God help us. May God help us as we serve him and follow him. Go in grace and peace.